Hello, and welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Leith Booley, accomplished non-executive director and recently appointed chairman of Sunwater Limited. Happy New Year to everybody who's listening to the Arate Podcast. I hope you're looking forward to a great 2016 and that your goals are such that you'll be able to reach out and achieve fantastic things in terms of your own career. Certainly from my perspective, I'm really looking forward to bringing excellent guests to you over the course of 2016. And on that note, if you have anybody in your organisation, particularly your CEO or chair, that you think would enjoy participating as a guest, I'd love to hear from you and talk about how that can potentially happen. Let's get on now and introduce our guest for today, Leith Booley. For the past 20 years, Leith Booley has built an excellent board career and has had an extensive portfolio of diverse and interesting board roles. Her current portfolio includes being the newly appointed chairman of Sunwater Limited, chairman of Burnett Water, director of Isis Central Sugar Mill, and independent chair of the Tropical Water Quality Hub with the National Environmental Science Program. She has a Bachelor of Rural Science, a postgraduate diploma of business studies, and is a graduate of the AICD company directors course. Leith has been recognized for her achievements in business with a number of awards, including in 2014, being one of the top 100 women in Australian agribusiness. In 2006, Australian Women's Weekly and Meat Livestock Australia Award for Inspiring Rural Women, and in 2004, finalist for the Telstra Business Women of the Year Awards. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Leith Booley. So Leith, thanks very much for joining us on the RHA podcast. It's fantastic to have you here. And this recording is happening two days before Christmas. So uh, it's good that we've still got our professional hats on to be able to have a good conversation before we go on holidays. How's your morning been? It's been very good. Thank you, Richard. And it's lovely to be here. Excellent. Well, look, uh, perhaps for those people who are listening in, uh, you can start the conversation by just talking about your current range of responsibilities, of which I know there are many. <laughs> um, well, I guess I've just recently been appointed as chairman of the Board of Sunwater, which is a regional water infrastructure company. Um, I also serve on the boards of um, Murrumbidgee Irrigation, which is in southern New South Wales, one of the larger irrigation corporations. Um, I'm a director on the board of the Isis Central Sugar Mill, which mm -hmm. is based at, at Childers. And I chair the board of the Centre of Excellence for Water Recycling and a number of other, other roles as well. Right. So would you describe yourself more as a water expert or an agribusiness expert or a regional business expert, what's your, uh, your unique selling proposition? Well, I've been in water for a long time, so I know a lot about water, mm -hmm. but I really know, I think, a lot about people and how to work with stakeholders okay. effectively, and that's, that's what sure. lots of my roles have, right. have involved. And that's a very transferable skill, which no doubt you bring to bearing in each of your responsibilities. Yeah. I, I like really complex, difficult okay. issues that 
you take a lot of energy and a, a lot of collaboration to work through. Fantastic. But I imagine uh, your dance card, as they say, is pretty full. Um, it's as full as I want it to be. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. All right, well, that's excellent. Well, certainly it's great to have you. Uh, a lot of uh, the people who listen to this podcast are in executive roles looking to move to a portfolio career. And uh, I imagine you'll have some really interesting insights to talk to about that. But let's just begin by going back to where it all began and have a chat to us about where you were born and your family and, you know, uh, your early years of growing up. Okay, so I was actually born in Victoria in a little town called Newmerka. Uh My parents had moved to Queensland when they married and mum went back to Victoria to have the first child. Right. Um, I was meant to be a boy. Okay. When I wasn't a boy, they had to to find a a name pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, of course... um, Back to Queensland, my father managed properties around Mandara, Glen Morgan for uh, a while. So uh, rural um, yeah, properties? farming. Yeah. Um, and then they bought a property at Roma, so I, I grew up between Roma and okay. Surat on a, on a sheep farm. Right. And uh, brothers and sisters? Uh, um, a brother and a sister. Right. Both, okay. both younger, of course. Uh-huh. Um, I was a difficult child. Mum taught us. We had had to do correspondence right. and school of the air. So by grade six, I was sent off to boarding school oh, really? in Toowoomba. So at eight years old, effectively, I left left home. Which, so you're, you're a bit too naughty. Um, I was naughty, but also very difficult, hard to keep me engaged in things. And I wanted I wanted to be out in the paddock, not, okay. not sitting down doing schoolwork. Right. Uh-huh. And so um, was uh, going to boarding school a rude shock then? It was awful. Um, I had to wear shoes. Right. <laughs> and you know, I had to sit in class and be quiet. Um, it, it was, I hadn't had much engagement with mm-hmm. children my own age. I was used to mixing with adults. Okay. And so that, all of that was pretty confronting. Right. But I imagine that uh, uh, you were old enough that you can remember it very clearly. Yes. Right. And so how long did it take you to get into the swing of things? I'm not sure I ever did. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> um, boarding school was wonderful for me. Mm-hmm. With, without um, my education at Glenny and the headmistress that, that I had, um, I'd probably be a, a wayward adult as, right. <laughs> after Fair. having been a potentially wayward child. And what about your brother and sister? Did they stay on the farm or follow in your footsteps? No, um, my sister went to Adelaide to work and she was she was unfortunately passed away okay. a long time ago mm-hmm. um, my brother he's also in South Australia and right. he, he operates a, um, a, a brickworks okay. um, that makes specialized right. bricks for people who like nice brick oh very good and so um, uh, did you stay at that same boarding school right through until you finished your high schooling I did. Um, so I finished school at 16 and went off to the University of New England and did rural science because Dad wasn't going to let me come home right. to the farm. Um, that wasn't what girls did. Okay. Um, so I went and did, did rural science and um, when I'd finished that, it was very hard for women to get mm-hmm. um, roles in agriculture. Mm-hmm. So even at that stage, you still very much wanted to return to a, a farm-style agribusiness life? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so it's the idea of Dad won't let me back to his farm, I'll just find a different farm. Yeah, I'll, and I'll find a role working with farmers. Right. Okay. Um, 
um, the degree really set me up for a research career, mm -hmm. um, which I didn't didn't pursue in okay. the end. Yeah. Um, but it, um, you know, jobs in extension and working with other farmers, mm -hmm. women were just seen as not capable of changing sure. the tyre on the Land Cruiser, as right. one CEO told okay. me. Right. <laughs> and so um, what, at that time, were you hoping that you would do? Um, I didn't have a very clear picture. I knew I wanted to do something that was interesting and exciting and yeah. would challenge me. Okay. And in effect, that's what I did do. I had uh, a mate at university who had another mate in the Northern Territory who ran a rural extension program for Indigenous cattle stations. Okay. So I went up to teach horse breaking for right. six weeks. Okay. Um, and ended up staying four years. Mm -hmm. um, I never met Indigenous people in my life mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. um, all of the communities that we worked with up there spoke language, not English. Okay. Um, so it was it was a it, it was a real change. I'm sure. And the whole four years doing a teaching horse breaking or a variety no. of things. No. Um, in the end, I didn't teach very much horse breaking. Right. <laughs> um, I ended up um, running a, one of the stores on mm -hmm. one of the stations in northern South Australia for a little while and okay. then they found some funding for me to come into the Rural Extension Program mm -hmm. and I did some projects looking at um, uh, exporting camels from the Northern Territory okay. um, and a whole range of things like that. Right. Worked with the cattle stations and probably the most important mentor I've ever had was a man called Yummy Lester, who mm -hmm. he was the director of the Institute for Aboriginal Development. Right, and that's interesting. And um, you were saying that you were getting quite a bit of resistance from, uh, you know, European uh, uh, agribusiness um, because of the fact that you're a woman. How did you notice that change in terms of working in the indigenous communities? What was their attitude towards it? Um, I didn't feel any. Um, gender pressure, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, my nickname was Young Fella. Okay. I could fall off a horse like anyone else. Right. So, so, so I was pretty much right. okay. Um, the important thing was to respect people mm -hmm. and um, particularly with Indigenous people to mm -hmm. take the time to build a relationship. Mm. Um, and once you had a relationship, um, you, you could work effectively with Fantastic. people. And you mentioned that that particular fellow was a great mentor for you at the time. What were some of the takeaways from that experience that have assisted you throughout your career? Um, probably two main things. One is, you know, I'd grown up on the land, so I had thought I had a relationship with the land. Um, but I learnt through Yummy that I, that I didn't really understand it. So okay. un understanding the land water and rivers from an Indigenous perspective or mm -hmm. a spiritual perspective sure. um, opened up a whole new way for me to look at know, agriculture and and how we utilise the, the landscape that we're so privileged to have. That's fascinating. I mean, we hear a lot about uh, the Aboriginal spirituality very much associated with respecting the land and so on. For, for people who've got no experience with what that means, how would you sort of quickly articulate that? Um, I'm not a religious person, but I am a spiritual person, and sure. it's probably because of, you know, mm -hmm. the relationships uh, that I've built with Indigenous people and, and the land in Central Australia. Um, one, perhaps one way to describe it is um, when I fly into Central Australia and the Kimberleys, 
I can feel the place singing. Okay. Yeah. So there's a there's, there's a, a, a link there. Mm-hmm. Um, pick up a handful of dirt and let it run through your fingers and you can feel the ages. You know, mm-hmm. we live in an ancient continent. Sure. Um, and simply having the opportunity to think about it, to, to as, as I learned up there, to learn to that you must talk and talk and talk until the talking starts. And that's really about getting to know people. Okay. You know, spirituality is about relationships, not just with the land and water, but, but mm-hmm. with people as well. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Um, do you think that your ability to fly into Central Australia and feel the land, as you, you um, uh, stated, is a, a skill that you acquired? Or do you think that everybody has that? It's just we've turned off our ability to intuitively listen to it? Um, I think everyone has the ability to do it. Right. I, I think, unfortunately, we get caught up in the, sure. the world that we right. operate in and we're busy and we, we need things yeah. and we don't, we don't stop yeah, and smell the roses often enough. Right. I have a friend of mine, Andrew Leach, and uh, I'll get him on the podcast next year. He takes uh, executives into Central Australia to hang out with a traditional Aboriginal elder for a week. And uh, all the people that I know who've been on that experience said it was absolutely incredible. It's so close to us, isn't it? Yet people are so keen to get over to Europe and get over to the States and not recognising we've got this amazing uh, culture that's literally a couple of hours away. So um, it's great to hear that. Okay, so you were up uh, in that role for about four years. And was that at the same time that you, it seems you're pretty heavily involved in the Army Reserve? Yes, I joined the Army Reserve when I was up, up there. Okay. Um, North Force was lots of fun because right. we got to do real things. Yeah. Um, there were, of course, very few women, I mm-hmm. think. There were probably about two of us at the time that, right. that I joined. Um, quite a lot of Indigenous mm-hmm. um, men were had, okay. had joined up and I learnt um, an awful lot about bush tucker, particularly in the northern part of the Territory okay. over that time. Yeah. And uh, for somebody who, as a young uh, girl, had really sort of bucked against authority, how did you go working in such a regimented environment like the Army? Well, the only regret I actually have in life is that I didn't join full-time. Is that right? Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Be- um, because dis- I'm, I might buck authority right. or ask questions. Right. That discipline is absolutely one of the most important qualities that, that, that you need to develop. Right. And so this is obviously a recorded podcast so people can't see, but you're here dressed as very much the professional corporate uh, uh, lady, but obviously underneath there is a, uh, a very different personality that uh, <laughs> shines out in other ways. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, and so where did what happen from there? Um, I was offered a role in South Australia. The South Australian government offered me a role in the area that's north of the dog fence in South Australia, which okay. is essentially north of Port Augusta mm-hmm. as their first pastoral advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd been, well, Australia had been eradicating TB and brucellosis um, for some years by that time, and they it was very much driven by the vets, and they needed to bring in someone who could look at the financial and economic impact on mm-hmm. on the pastoralists in the mm-hmm. north of South Australia. Mm-hmm. So I came in and did that for a while, and okay. um, then moved on. All right, and. Uh, um 
continuing to work very much in the agri space. Uh, so was it, did you have a plan in terms of how you wanted your career to evolve or were just things appearing on your radar and you thought that looks interesting, I'll just have, do that for a while? Um, I've only, I've probably had two plans. One, one was to you know, get back onto the land, which, yeah. which was, the next, was the next step or whether it was, I'm not sure it was a plan, it was something I wanted to do. Sure. Um, and then for a period um, in the 90s, I had a plan. But apart from that, I've never really had a plan. Right. Um, my, my rule is that I do things that uh, are fun, are worthwhile, mm-hmm. and will make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm not enjoying things, I stop doing them. Fair enough. And so was it that you stopped enjoying doing the work for South Australia that made you move on from that opportunity? Um. Uh, only in part. Um, at about that time, I met my husband, who's now my ex-husband. Okay. Um, and we both wanted to go back on the land. He'd he'd grown up on the land. Yeah. Um, and so we bought property in southwest Queensland. Uh huh. And uh, what did what uh, uh, kind of things did you do with that property? Okay. So when we bought it, it was um, a beautiful piece of. Floodplain country in the, the lower Ballon, just near Derrimbandi. Mm-hmm. Um, we ran sheep for oh, 12, 15 years. Then we um, did some irrigation development mm-hmm. and some cropping development. Mm-hmm. And when I exited the property a few months ago, we had irrigated cotton, dryland, wheat mostly, and cattle. Right. And uh, for the majority of that time, that was your 100% focus professionally? Um, not really. Probably the first six or seven years and while the kids were very small. Um, but early in the time that we owned, owned the farm, irrigation development became quite significant in that, mm-hmm. in that region. Um, and there was significant conflict um, our property was on the floodplain, as I said, and if you're on a floodplain, you need water to flood. Um, the irrigation development threatened that, okay. and it was kind of one of those um, light bulb moments where you go, um, well, I understood the relationship between the environment and its success and agriculture, Sure. but this is a whole new perspective. So mm-hmm. that is actually where I started um, my significant interest in water right. um, and policy and planning okay. and um, resolving conflict, I guess, at the community level. And is that what inspired you to go back and do some postgraduate qualifications in business? Uh, no, I'd, I'd done them, uh, or probably I'd almost finished when we bought the farm, so probably a couple of years after that right. I'd, I'd okay. finished, so it was, yeah, it was before. Okay. I'd... So you saw what was happening in terms of the necessity for good quality policy and a good awareness of how to manage agribusiness and water as an asset, and you foresaw for yourself a career in that space? Uh, I, I didn't see a career. I saw a calling at that okay. time. Sure. Um, it was... There weren't people in our community who knew how to engage with government. Mm-hmm. I'd had enough experience with government to understand how to do that. Um, there weren't people who um, particularly wanted to to stand up and argue about okay. things in the community. So um, 
I guess I just decided that, mm-hmm. well, it was important for us, but it was also important for that community that mm-hmm. if we were going to have development, it had to be done in a way that everyone's interests and rights um, were protected. Mm-hmm. And at that particular point of time, the Queensland government um, didn't understand um, and wasn't interested in understanding that you know, we needed to have rational planning mm-hmm. um, and and allocation of water resources mm-hmm. in, a, in a sensible manner. Mm. And so how did you start to get the attention particularly of government and the significant um, decision makers in that space? You're, um, you're working on a farm, you've got some agribusiness and some consulting experience in your past, but how did you, you know, start to make the noise to get on their radar? Oh, we created conflict. So, okay. you know, it was there were two groups in the community. Right. Um, and we'd write letters, we'd go on the radio, we'd, okay. we'd argue with each other. There mm-hmm. were there were court cases. Um, it wasn't it wasn't very pleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure I would do it that way right. again okay. if I went back. However, all of us learnt enormous lessons from mm-hmm. it, and people from both sides of that enormous conflict are now very good friends. Right. And um, so for what period of time did that conflict last? Oh, at least a decade. Okay. Um, and in, in, in relation to the, the water resource plan for that, that area, um, it, came, it came to a head um, with the, the then Premier and Water Minister um, ending up inviting me to go and facilitate a process between mm-hmm. everyone in the community and they, right. gave, they gave me six months to, uh-huh. to, to complete it and um, we had Peter Cullen, Professor Peter Cullen came in and um, did an analysis of the, the science and everyone agreed that you know, what the outcome of that was would be mm-hmm. accepted by everyone mm-hmm. and we ended up with one of the best water resource plans in Australia and with very strong support from from most of the people in the district. Fantastic. And so when you look back now at, you know, the outcomes that were achieved, uh, what are some of the significant um, uh, achievements that would be easy to talk to about today? Okay, so the most significant achievement was getting people around a table to look at the data and mm-hmm. understand what was in front of us rather than being spoon-fed by someone else. Right. Once people understand the information in front of them, they're able to make rational decisions. Mm -hmm. The other component of that is really allowing people to talk about what matters Mm -hmm. to them, what what they value. And when you understand each other as people, um, what's valued, you can resolve conflict. Sure. And at the same time as all that's happening, you're starting to build your board portfolio as well. So how did that all, um, I mean, it, it, it sounds though running a farm in itself is a, a, a significant undertaking. You're in a 10-year uh, uh, engagement in terms of creating heat and noise to get some outcomes that you're looking for. What, when did you go, oh, I think I'll do some board roles as well? Well, that, that came along accidentally, and I'd say in, in part because in relation to the 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 water and what mm-hmm. was going on in water policy and politics at that mm-hmm. time, um, it made sense for people to put me on committees and boards to shut me up. Right. So uh, it was a case of uh, you joining these boards because 
they wanted you to get heavily involved in order to be less of an agitator. Yeah, I think there were people who thought that might be possible. Right. And so um, uh, the initial uh, board involvement was in terms of um, largely in the uh, government space. Yes, and and largely in the, the water policy, natural resources space. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, it, obviously you were starting to really build a reputation as having expertise in that area. What kind of uh, things were you doing to build your own knowledge bank in terms of were you looking at what was happening internationally in relation to water as a resource or were you doing any kind of uh, specific uh, study in that space? What were you doing? Um, at that time, there was very little that I hadn't read internationally and nationally about mm -hmm. um, water and water resource development, water resource policy, and you know, there, was, there was lots of new knowledge about um, ecology and, mm -hmm. and the importance of maintaining healthy rivers to mm -hmm. support um, agriculture and, mm -hmm. and, and other industry. Um, so I'd, call, I'd say that period of my career... I had a lot of technical knowledge, okay. um, which I would say now I no longer have. Because the, uh, the science has moved on? No, because there are many people who are much smarter than I who, who understand the science and know the science and are at the leading edge. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully I know who they are now and I can go to, go to them. My skill is no longer in the technical um, arena. Okay. It's... It, it's in stakeholder management, stakeholder management, um, strategic mm -hmm. agendas. I've always said I've never had too many good ideas myself, but I'm very good at recognising them and mm -hmm. facilitating outcomes from mm. them. Okay, and so really, uh, you started your board career in the early nineties. Yeah, uh, it's been a career now in the board space of twenty odd years. Um, if you think about that length of time. What are some of the uh, pivotal moments or key milestones uh, that you would look back on and say, this has really allowed me to go into a full-blown, highly respected uh, career that has enabled me to become the chair of significant organisations like Sunwater? Um, when, when I learnt that you don't have to know everything, mm -hmm. you have to be very good at asking questions, mm -hmm. Um, to be effective in in board roles, um, being respectful of other people, um, learning how to draw out ideas mm -hmm. from people. Um, there hasn't hasn't been a particular moment in the board space, but there was a particular moment. I was lucky enough to have been given a scholarship on the Australian Rural Leadership Program back okay. in the early nineties, I suppose. Uh huh. Or mid nineties, no, two thousand. Right. Um, and that program involves a session up in the Kimberleys, um, which is uh, about self exploration. And it, I had a fantastic facilitator. Mm -hmm. And sitting down by um, a, a riverbank um, one afternoon, um, doing, you know, having a conversation around, you know why you don't think you're worthy or why you don't think you're competent. Mm -hmm. And this is a one-on-one -on -one conversation. This is a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Yeah, okay. And uh, I'd always been pretty closed um, and not shared a lot mm -hmm. about myself. Okay. And, 
And in this conversation, all of a sudden I felt like, well, I can talk about right. a whole lot of things I've never talked about before. Mm-hmm. And that changed, that changed me and my outlook on life. I came to trust people first rather than, than waiting for them to prove that they, they were trustworthy. And so um, it's a really interesting point. Uh, uh, there's another lady on uh, the podcast recently, Margaret, Margie Hasseltang, and she talked about being away at a facilitated uh, professional development event and having this experience where she suddenly uh, felt very much that she could be herself and, and obviously similar for you. Um, so if you, uh, it, it was almost a, as if a switch was flicked um, and there was this instantaneous enlightenment experience. Yeah, I think I realised that I, I was actually okay and, right. you know, I was good enough to do okay. the things that, that, that were offered to me. Right. I always felt very humble when people invited me to join a board uh-huh. or... Um, and I would often ask, why me? I'd al- I almost right. turned down the ABC board because mm-hmm. I couldn't see what it was that I had to, to offer. That was prior to this experience? Yes. Okay. And so how, how did um, having this experience change the way that then you presented or reacted to these opportunities? Um, I thought about, um, will they be complex? Will they... Um, do something that is a benefit to society, whether mm-hmm. it's public or, or private. Mm-hmm. Um, will I be interested? Mm-hmm. Um, and do I know enough questions? Have I got enough questions to ask to be able to, to, to get to um, engage properly in whatever the business okay. is? Okay. So it became almost uh, you then vetting the opportunities and saying, I am good enough, so I've got to make sure you're good enough for me. Yes. Right. Okay. That's interesting. You mentioned uh, just in passing then uh, you were on the ABC board. Now, obviously, that would be a very prestigious board to be invited to join. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, when I got the phone call to see if I'd be interested, I said, well, I, it was the minister that called me. I said, I'm not sure I've got anything to offer the ABC. And Can, when would this have been? Uh, oh, I don't know, late, late 90s. Okay. Um I forget dates. Right. <laughs> I'm not a detail person. No worries. <laughs> um, and uh, I said, can I have a week to think about it? And I think he was a bit taken aback, but right. he gave me a week to think about it. And, right. And, and so uh, why, do you know why they specifically reached out to you? Um, in this instance, it was because there was no one on the ABC board who had rural and regional right. experience. Okay. So they wanted they wanted someone who had that experience, who had good governance skills, yeah. and you know could um, right. be effective in sure. in that boardroom, which was you know there were some significant people I, I, on that I board. I bet. And how long were you on that board for? F- five years. Right. And so um, uh, in terms of the mandate. We want you to join the board because you will be representative of um, uh, the regional sort of uh, uh, space that you just spoke about. What did they want you to achieve on the board in that regard? Um, they didn't appoint me to be representative of. Right. Um, when you're appointed as a director, you're a, your your interest is the is the company. Sure. Okay. And. Um, it was simply that I brought that perspective. Okay. So in decision making, I could ask questions right. and have perspectives that were around, you know, how will this work for okay. rural and regional Australia? Okay, got it. And so um, 
What were some of the uh, examples perhaps in that five-year period of where your regional perspective enabled the ABC to do something perhaps that they wouldn't have otherwise? I'm not sure that there was anything special. Mm -hmm. um, and the ABC is incredibly important for, for rural and regional Australia. Sure. Um, I guess online was initiated in okay. the very early early days right. um, of my term on the board and, mm -hmm. and that's, you know, the, the, the online technologies are fantastic for mm -hmm. rural and regional Australia if they've got access to the web. Um, a lot of the emergency reporting that the ABC supports mm -hmm. um, um, government agencies with during floods and fires mm -hmm. um, are things that were embedded during during that time. Okay, okay, yeah. great. And uh, and then you stepped off that board because it was, it was time? You, you felt that you'd achieved what you needed to there? Or? Uh, my term was was oh, up and right. five years is, uh, yeah, that's quite a long time sure. on a board in my view. If you haven't, if you haven't made a contribution right. um, by then, sure. you're probably not going to. Fair enough. And so what were some of the other uh, significant boards that you've uh, been on uh, prior to your current portfolio? Um, I'm just having a, a mind blank now. Um, I've served on boards of lots of um, research and development corporations, mm -hmm. so I've, I've always kept the, my interest in science right. alive, yes. um, even though I'm not technically involved. Um, so Land and Water Australia was, was important. Mm -hmm. um, in, in that same vein, I was a commissioner for the Australian Heritage Commission, and that mm -hmm. was a fascinating opportunity to you know, look at Australia's heritage across natural and, and built and mm -hmm. cultural okay. um, aspects. I've been a National Water Commissioner. Um, I've chaired um, Wide Bay Water Corporation, mm -hmm. um, which was Queensland's only local government-owned corporation at, at the time. Mm -hmm. um, what else have I done? So, out of interest, because uh, I get asked this question all the time, of all of your board roles, how many of those have been where you have seen an opportunity and made an application in an open market, an employment market, to find a new non-executive director? Um, the majority of my roles have been offered to me. Mm -hmm. I'm very, I'm very rarely successful at anything that I apply for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that you know, for those people listening in, uh, which I talk about all the time, is that you, you know it really comes down to relationships. It comes down to being uh, in front of the chair before they necessarily know that they need you mm. and building um, some unique skills which make you highly valued in the board space which a lot of people just don't seem to understand. They go and do their AICD course, and then they say, okay, I'm here, I've got my qualification, come and get me. But um, building a good board portfolio is, it's difficult, isn't it? And uh, um, I think a lot of people under uh, appreciate um, how much of these opportunities come through being approached to join a board rather than you know, applying for a job like you would as an executive. Yes, being a director is is definitely not like being an executive, and mm -hmm. my board career has been quite different to to most people who come up through executive roles mm -hmm. um, and then decide to move into into board roles. Um, in some ways, that's that's also held me back because I can't say I've been 
a CEO or a CFO, sure. and there are a lot of still a lot of boards and chairmen who are looking for people who had those roles rather than the more strategic mm-hmm. um, and you know, difficult, complex roles that that I've had. Um, I guess you know it's. You've got to think carefully about taking on a director's role and, and the qualities that you need to bring to it to be effective are that you, you have to be really independent. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to do your own work. You have to be able to... Un- you have to understand what you stand for and what the company stands for. And it's it's not just something to put on your CV. Sure. It is really hard work. Yes, absolutely. And... Uh uh, once again, I think that a lot of people that I see, they get so excited about being offered a board role, they don't really take the time to do the necessarily due diligence to say, is this actually something that I really want and I can contribute value to and we will, in- we will enhance each other's brands. Yes. Um, whereas obviously that due diligence piece for you is something that you've developed quite strongly over the years to really analyse an opportunity before you engage in it. Yes, and I'd encourage everyone to do sure. that. Don't take a role just because it's offered. So, without naming any names, can you talk about an example of where you were approached about a board and upon you doing your due diligence you said thanks but no thanks? Um, I'll talk about one where I accepted the role. Okay. And that was uh, an incorrect decision on my part. I, I joined this board at... The, the company had all the right um, ingredients that did good things, that created value. Um, a private company? private company. Uh-huh. Um, and what I didn't do was enough due diligence on the directors. Right. And it was a bullying culture within the board. Mm-hmm. And I lasted a while. Um, and then I said to myself, well, you accepted the position, you've got an obligation to try a bit harder. So I tried mm-hmm. a bit harder, tried to work um, work with each of the directors that that I had challenges with. Mm-hmm. In the end, couldn't get to a place where it was a good working relationship, so mm-hmm. I resigned. And how long would, that have, uh, would you have been on that board for? Oh, about 14 months. Right. And so... Uh, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently in terms of your initial investigation to potentially have uncovered those issues? You don't always get the opportunity, but you should try and meet the other directors because if there's not a cultural fit, if the dynamic's not going to be right around the board table, then you won't be effective and neither will the board. So you think if you'd had the opportunity or chosen to meet with each of the directors before accepting the appointment, you probably would have picked up on these issues? I think so. Right, okay, well that's interesting. And you're an extremely uh, well uh, awarded person. You've uh, received a lot of recognition for your achievements. Um, Women in agribusiness, 100, top 100 in 2014, Australian Women's Weekly and Meat Livestock (laughs) Australia Award, finalist in the Telstra Business Woman of the Year Award, et cetera. Um, How have these, recognition uh, pieces come to you? I mean, obviously, there's been quite a number of different awards over the last few years. Is that something that you've actively sought out or uh, you've been surprised by? I'm embarrassed by awards. (laughs) (laughs) My purpose on on this earth is not not to get 
um, awards, um, what I get real pleasure from is seeing people that I've supported or mentored mm -hmm. getting awards. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I do is, is run leadership programs. Um, and one that I'm running at the moment is for the Peter Cullen Trust. Okay. And that's about um, giving people in their mid-careers um, the, the skills to make a difference and to, to stand up and, and be counted. And if, if it won't be my awards that are a legacy, right. it'll, be, it'll be theirs. Sure. And so what sort of people would be uh, participating uh, in that as the mentees? Um, it, it's a, it's a merit-based um, selection process okay. and the participants come from um, uh, private enterprise, from government, from policy, from water utilities. Mm -hmm. Um, across Australia, right. Um, so we take fifteen every year and um, run an outdoor program, and okay. and then they do some work around a project that's around a major policy issue. And oh, great! And, and so, how long have you been involved with that for? So I've been doing that one for five years. Okay. Um, but I also work with the Australian Rural Leadership okay. Foundation and and others on on other programs. Okay, great. And let's now have just a. Quick talk about your most recent uh, appointment as um, chair of Sunwater, because uh, obviously uh, it's uh, only happened recently, and we're here in Brisbane, and Sunwater is certainly a very recognised, uh, significant government-owned corporation here. Um, I note that you were doing some consulting work for them uh, on some special projects prior to your appointment. Um, not for Sunwater. The the work I was doing some work with the previous government, looking at. Um, how it might be possible to move the irrigation schemes that are owned and operated by Sunwater at the moment into okay. into local management. Mm -hmm. So I spent two years working with those schemes, mm -hmm. um, and I'm really pleased to say that the, the current government has decided to proceed with right. with that work because um, a lot of people put a lot of effort and energy mm -hmm. into it. There's some extraordinary leadership shown across those eight communities and um, to give people the opportunity to um, you know, take charge of their own destiny, I think is a, is a fantastic thing. Excellent. And so how did the actual uh, chair opportunity come about then? That was another surprise. Right. <laughs> yes. So um, I was offered the role um, a couple of months ago and right. um, went through the process and, yep. and here we are. Excellent. And so... Uh, without necessarily speaking specifically to some water, but just in terms of your own approach, when you come into an organisation uh, as their chair, often with CEOs, they talk about the first 90 days. You know that you're familiar with that. Uh, what, what, um, what's the difference coming in as a chair when you're looking at, say, the next 12 months? How do you uh, uh, engage with the organisation to get the early wins to make sure that the role is successful? Um, for me, particularly with Sunwater, because I knew something about mm -hmm. um, the company, I said I have to forget what I know and go in and start asking questions from, mm -hmm. from scratch. So I'm still doing that right. two, two, two months in, and it's extraordinary how much you, you learn when you set aside sure. any judgments that you have. Um, I, of course, have almost a... A brand new board, mm -hmm. so I've only got one continuing board member. Mm -hmm. um, we've just got everyone 
appointed right. and so we're going through an induction phase for new directors. Um, it's, it's a complex company. Um, being government-owned adds another degree of complexity. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, it's easy, easy to serve on government-owned corporation boards. It's, it's much more complex than um, private enterprise mm-hmm. um, because you've got a whole lot of layers of stakeholders mm-hmm. and, and there is always, always so many um, issues around public good and, and making the right sorts of decisions. Sure. So with Sunwater, I'm still in the phase of um, understanding the, the business and the culture and the people, and there's just some fantastic people mm. in Sunwater who, who I'd never met before. Sure. Um, and we're just going into uh, our strategic planning mm-hmm. process for, for the year ahead. So okay. It's it's an exciting time, right? And uh, what makes it even more interesting is that at the moment you're in the process of appointing a new CEO, uh, which uh, to come in as a new chair with a new board and then a new CEO, it's uh, exciting from the perspective of uh, getting the opportunity to uh, almost uh, have a, an entire fresh approach. But at the same time, uh, you know, it must be daunting to have to deal with a, a new board and a new CEO at the same time. Um, What's your view on uh, the relationship between chair and CEO? I mean, that gets talked a lot about, and I often ask my CEO guests about how do they manage upwards and how do they enjoy the most fruitful relationship with their chair. From your point of view as a chair, what would you have to say? Um, It should be friendly, not friends. Mm -hmm. It should be absolutely open with each other, provide each other feedback it's not a it's not a one-way um, role in the chair providing the CEO feedback because um, you need to be on the same page and understand each other and be able to work um, with each other's strengths mm-hmm. um, the current CEO at Sunwater Peter Botcher is has been an absolutely fantastic CEO sure. he's he's made an enormous contribution to to Sunwater, and yes, it's a bit daunting when um, people decide, make life life choices, and decide to move on. Fortunately, I've got him for another few months before yes. before he does move on. Um, uh, probably the most important relationship is between the the, mm-hmm. the chair and the and the CEO, um, and I'd just describe it as needs to be open and honest and mm-hmm. and um, at all times frank, and there should never be any surprises. Fair enough. Well, certainly, um, uh, I think that there will be many people listening to this podcast who would be interested in hearing now sort of your philosophies of what does it take to be a great leader? What what are the attributes that you've developed uh, uh, either intuitively or strategically within yourself in order to broaden your capability to reach the career that you have? What, what are some of the pieces of advice that you'd offer? Um. Be humble, um, ask a lot of questions, be sure about what you stand for and whilst always standing for it, um, don't, don't dig yourself into a corner. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to work with people. No, nothing happens with, without people mm-hmm. um, and it's no good having a great idea if you haven't got anyone on, on the team with you. So I put a lot of my energy into understanding the team, whether that's the board team or the executive team or the 
or the organisation and knowing where people's strengths and capability are. What are the sort of uh, tools or um, uh, the ways that you utilise in order to you, for you to get that depth of understanding? Are there particular uh, things that you've picked up over time that you you implement uh, on purpose for that or is it more just a case of just lots of conversation and, and just being present? It's mostly conversation and being present but, but being deliberate about Mm-hmm. Um, engaging with people. I, I'm an introvert, so okay. I would much prefer not to talk to anyone. Right. Um, and and so I have to make it my business mm-hmm. um, to go and talk to people. I'm interested in people. Sure. I like people. Um, and and that that's that's how I mm-hmm. um, how I engage and understanding what drives people. Mm-hmm. If you know what drives someone, um, and you can achieve their goal as well as yours, mm-hmm. then everyone wins. And so there are, are there specific questions that you would ask, say, a new member of your board or a new CEO in order to elicit, you know, what are their key drivers? Um, I like to understand if they know what their values are. A okay. lot of people don't really understand yeah. um, what their values are, haven't thought about it deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to... I like people who can... Um, Argue the case from all perspectives, not just from mm-hmm. from from one. Um, I guess I don't really have a way. Mm-hmm. I, I use intuition, I guess, sure. or gut feel mm-hmm. to, to go about thinking about how, how do I get to know this person, and it'll depend on what the situation is. Right. Well, um, let me ask a question slightly differently. <laughs> when you're teaching your leadership um, courses and you're mentoring uh, people coming up. What, what are the ways that you encourage them to get to know what their own values are? What, what should people do? Okay, so firstly, I don't teach. Right. I provide opportunities for learning. Okay. And I ask people to make a commitment to their own learning. Okay. And for them to take responsibility and to be accountable. Mm-hmm. And with the leadership programs, I, I do use activities that help people discover their values. Mm-hmm. Um, I do it in a way that um, they're giving each other feedback. Okay. And so, because most of us, we think if we think we know what our values are, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily what other people see. Mm-hmm. So, having that, giving people a mirror to look into and and understand um, what other people see, then allows them to think more deeply about, about okay. values. So it's quite a structured. Uh experiential way to uh, for people to come to their own self-realization around their values yes and what are some of the uh, the times where you could give examples of where people have been really surprised by what their values come up to be um, well just about every one of these leadership programs right um, just about every every person who's participated has gone oh wow I didn't I didn't know that about myself I right. didn't know that about other people um, Many people have never had proper feedback mm. um, and, you know, being able to give people constructive feedback so mm. that they can improve, not critical feedback so they can feel bad, sure. um, is incredibly important. You know, we spend a lot of time telling each other how well we've done. Yes. That doesn't actually help us grow. Mm-hmm. Um, assisting people to see where they might improve mm-hmm. is, is a much more constructive 
thing to do. Excellent. And so would you say that these people are having similar experiences to the experience you had when you were sitting uh, by the river and you had that light bulb moment about what was important for you? I hope so. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, you know, in terms of leaving a legacy, uh, that must be quite... Um, and you must feel honoured to be able to participate in that kind of process for people, I imagine. It's it's an absolute privilege. There, right. there are so many good people. Mm-hmm. In fact, every everyone has something of value to offer. If you can suspend your judgment and give people a chance, mm. they always prove you're right. Oh, that's excellent. And so now just looking into the future... Uh, five to ten years from now, if we were sitting down and having this chat, uh, you know, what would you be hoping that you're doing? Um, things that are interesting and fun and complex and difficult okay. and have value. Do you have any particular aspirations or you'll just wait and see what unfolds naturally and gracefully? Probably at the moment, we'll be looking for, for grace. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And uh, we've talked a lot about you uh, from a professional point of view. What about when you're not at work? What are the kind of things that you do to uh, keep your energy up and, and have fun and, and uh, remain uh, balanced and sane? Um, I go scuba diving. Okay. Um, I'm a, a CrossFit addict. Right. <laughs> um, so I like to be fit and yes. active. Um I like being in the bush. Right. Um, Do you still spend much time actually on the land? No, not not now. Right. Um, and I don't mind that so long as I can go bush. Okay. And how much of your time is connected in with the, the Indigenous communities and so on that were really instrumental earlier in your career? Um, not as much as I'd like now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so perhaps that's something that I'll go back to and do more of okay well that's excellent well look before we uh, wrap it up is there anything that we haven't discussed or any final points you'd like to make before we uh, call it a day I think you found out far too much about (laughs) (laughs) excellent well look uh, thanks I really appreciate it and uh, have a wonderful afternoon thanks Richard well I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Leith I found her to be an incredibly inspiring woman, and I really love to hear tales of people who have been able to take their career from such a diverse background, in Leaf's case being working in the farming industry and agribusiness, to now being regarded as one of the top female directors in Australia. I look forward to engaging with you in future Arate podcasts, and in the meantime, have a fantastic day.